your Bible. And as you turn there, I have a question. Have you ever been working on a project and you've wondered where that tool is that you needed? Maybe you even had it in your hand like 15 minutes before and you sat it somewhere or you left it on the last project and you just don't know where it is. Maybe you think someone moved it from that very strategic place that I left it, that I knew it was going to be when I needed to use it. Or you've been making a meal, right? And you realize you pull out that jar and the flour is gone. And someone failed to tell you that they, they used that last bit of flour. Tools are helpful, right? To accomplish the things that we want to do and need to do oftentimes in life. But when they're unavailable, you get stuck. You don't know what to do. Maybe you get frustrated. I got to go to the store. Well, Acts 11, the second half of it, and going into Acts 12, where we'll be this morning, will we'll highlight the suffering of the church. And you're probably like, well, how does that have to do with the tools? Well, the church has been given tools to endure. And this week, we're going to see what those tools are as we endure suffering. These tools are f our purpose, our provision for one another, and prayer while we trust God's providence with the tools that he has given us. And so let's stand for the reading of the scriptures. We'll pick it back up in Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except for Jews. But there are some of them, men of Cyrus and Cyrene, who are coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him, or 
for him was made to God by the church. You can have a seat. If you picked up those three points this morning of our purpose, our provision, and prayer, those are the tools that God gives us as a church enduring suffering. And Luke is wrapping up this section in the book of Acts that started back in chapter 6 when the deacons were appointed and Stephen was seized and Stephen was put to death for preaching the gospel. The gospel then left Judea, it left Jerusalem, it went to Samaria, and it's on its way to the ends of the earth. And at first glance, this section doesn't seem to account for much suffering, especially at the beginning part, right? But as it moves forward, it starts to escalate more and more. And without showing you a map, I thought about it, but I couldn't find one that would fit the screen properly and show you where the church was going. But if you were to look at the book of Acts, you would see that the story of the Ethiopian eunuch was in Gaza. You might have known where Gaza is in the news these days. It's in the very southern part along the Mediterranean coast in Israel. And as these towns and cities are mentioned, you'll see that the gospel is continuing to move north. It's going to make its way to Antioch, this hinge as it starts to move west through, uh, through Europe. Antioch is the pivot point as the gospel is going to start moving towards the ends of the earth. And as the church grows, that new believers start to believe the gospel, they're added to the body of the church. And the church we see here in the text, it rejoices, right? We would love to see that. And then we see this guy Barnabas. He comes again, he takes center stage. Barnabas becomes this continual fellow that comes into the book of Acts that begins to unify the church, to bring the church together, to keep focusing on the mission that we are given. And what he does here in this first section is he charges the church to be faithful. He says, remember what you've been called to do. Be faithful to that with purpose, with steadfast purpose. He's reminding the church to be faithful, and this will come in handy. Verse 21, the Lord, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. And so church, as God works by the power of the Spirit to give the gift of belief in the Son, God becomes central to the work of the church in the book of Acts. They're getting ready to go to the ends of the earth and suffering is going to come. Suffering is going to intensify. And this suffering that they're going to experience in chapters 11 and 12 is going to prepare them for what's going to come down the road. First, the church needs to be faithful. Stick to the purpose that God has given you. Our preaching, our music, or our coffee, if it gets brewed, or donuts, or cookies we had this morning. Small groups, men's groups, ladies' groups. They're all great things, right? We like those things. We like to participate in those things. But gospel faithfulness with purpose is our main goal, even if we don't have delicious cookies. And Barnabas reminds the church, church, be faithful with purpose. That's our main goal. Don't be distracted by the things that are about to come, even good things. 
Be faithful to the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, it is the gospel that drives this church to be faithful with purpose as their main goal. It's that gospel that drives the church to come alongside each other, to help each other to endure through the suffering that will come. The church will suffer from the gospel. It is not we may, it is we will. And as trouble comes, we're gonna need reminders to be faithful. As suffering comes, Barnabas wants us to remember your purpose. Trust God will be faithful while we give ourselves to faithfulness to the purpose that he has given us. Trusting God that fruitfulness will come. Keep steadfast focus on the prize and the life to come. Be ready. As I said, the gospel is about ready to move west. It's about ready to go towards Europe. It's ready to go towards the end of the known world. And Antioch is the third most important city in all of the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It's like the gospel has picked the city, not New York, not Los Angeles, but it's like Chicago is that city that God wants to use, the third most important, most populated city in all of the Roman Empire to be the pivot point that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. But be faithful to the purpose God has called you to. And Antioch was known for its immorality. It's kind of like a modern day Las Vegas. Antioch is also known for mocking and ridiculing people. And we see in the text that it was here in verse 26 that the disciples were first called Christians. And calling believers Christians or ones who are like Christ is not an endearing term in the text. Antioch notices that the church looks different and they start to make fun of them. This term is not a, good job Christians, it's, oh, those are Christians. Those are the ones who act like Christ. The first way that the church suffers here in the text is by being made fun of. Where the church is known in the Gospels and in the book of Acts for calling each other brothers and sisters, elders, mothers, fathers, Disciples, believers, or part of the way. Christian is one who is like Christ. It is not an endearing term. So there was a time Kristen and I were in Brazil and we were sitting at this table with this family. And they knew we were from the United States. And this guy, I won't tell you how long ago it was. You can imagine who may have been president. You might get it wrong, and he probably will. But he started to berate the president that we had at this time. This was a long time ago. He was categorizing us as an American. And everybody associated with that administration at the time was looked down upon in his eyes. This was a Brazilian guy. And it was very awkward for Kristen and I. They're like, I don't even know this president. I know who he is. But 
he was making fun of us. And we didn't really know that until one of the Brazilians was like, how'd you think about that? And he was doing it in Portuguese, so we lost a little bit in translation. But this term Christian is like what this guy was doing by calling us an American. We are associated with somebody. And in this sense, it is a derogatory way. The church is made, being made fun of. It's not endearing. Significantly, this is a term the church then starts to call themselves. And this is significant. Like, the church embraces this derogatory term as one who follows Christ, right? Because we want to follow Christ. Because as we remember our purpose, we should act like Christ, right? At first, the suffering is just some name-calling, just some ridicule. But they're faithful. They're faithful to Christ. But it's still suffering, right? Nobody likes to be made fun of. Sticks and stones may hurt your bones. Or, yeah, but words will never hurt you is a lie. Words hurt. We understand that. Luke wants us to remember our purpose. Friends, you can survive the name-calling. It'll be okay. But in the church today, in the world we live in today, Christian doesn't always mean someone who's dissimilar to the world around us, does it? Does that bother you? Can you tell the difference between a Christian and your neighbor or your coworker? Do you or do they walk differently than the world around them so that that person who's not a believer could see the difference? in the way that a Christian lives. Being a Christian is more than just gathering here on a Sunday or gathering on a Wednesday. It's being faithful to our purpose. It's being faithful to follow the example of Christ. So do we look different? We don't need to be seeking being called names, but we do need to maintain faithfulness to our purpose. And suffering is natural for a Christian. All Christians suffer. When we live differently than the world around us on purpose, don't be surprised when the world calls you out on it. Like, yes, you want them to see that. You want them to see that we live differently than the people of this world. Luke wants us to remember our purpose first. Second, in a community, he wants us to remember that we provide for one another. If we look again at verse 27, a famine or a natural disaster. We get those like every six weeks around here now. These come from the sovereign hand of the Lord. That's why the insurance companies call these acts of God. God is in control of all of these. And these are opportunities, church, to maintain faithfulness to the church's purpose, but also to provide for one another. You see what they did here in the text. The new church, those that were not in Jerusalem, those that looked different, that had some people that talked differently, looked differently, acted differently, they gather some resources together and they send it back to Jerusalem. God has grown this young, fledgling church in maturity 
to love one another, to provide for one another, not just the ones that are inside their particular congregation, but to send it back to Jerusalem. It'd be like if East Randolph had a financial need and we were like, of course, we're going to send you money. We're going to care for you. You helped plant us. We want to reciprocate that love back to you. And like I said, we have natural disasters here like every six weeks. Hopefully we don't have another one soon. But when the flood happened this summer, it was great to see this church come around each other, to come alongside each other, to help each other pack things up, to move some furniture, to even house some of you. But because of what God has done for us, we have a purpose to go be like Christ, but we also get to care for and provide for each other. Suffering alone is hard, but together the church helps each other. And I love Paul's words that he said to the Corinthian church. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Christianity is not an individual thing. It is a community thing. We are a family. And like any family, we got weird aunts and uncles. It'll be okay. But we are a family and we come alongside each other. Suffering comes to those who follow Christ. We remember our purpose. We provide for one another. And as the suffering intensifies, prayer is the third tool that God gives us to help. If you look, the disciples are arrested and they give each other to prayer. We see in uh, chapter 12 as it begins that we have a Herod. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. Uh, they're all related. They don't have a lot of um, unique ideas for names, but they're all really crazy sinful men. One, Herod the Great, killed all the innocent little babies in Jerusalem trying to murder Jesus. His son beheaded John the Baptist because he wanted to marry his brother, who was also named Herod's wife. The Herod in the text today, his dad, killed or was killed because his father was scared that he would overthrow the throne. This Herod today that we have in the text murders an apostle, the first apostle to be murdered in the Bible. He also throws Peter in prison right before Passover. And the church follows their master's footsteps, right? We're Christians. We follow what Jesus does. We do what Jesus does. We live like Jesus. James receives the sword like Jesus was pierced. Peter is put on trial right before Passover like Jesus was. And as the suffering escalates, what do we see in Where'd it go? The passage. <laughs> they devote themselves to prayer. In verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
The suffering escalated and the church gave itself to that third tool of prayer. The church goes to their loving father and petitions their loving father, please help us. Probably, please help us maintain our purpose. Probably, please help us. Is there a way that we can provide for our brother Peter? The church goes to God who delights to hear from his children and he also delights to respond to his children. And while Herod wanted power and glory, the church submits to God's power and God's glory and says, God, would you please help us and help our brother? On purpose, with mutual provision, they acknowledge God's power in prayer. The world is crazy. We would love to change it. But when the church doesn't live on mission purpose, what distinguishes it from the world around us? When the church doesn't care for one another, what distinguishes it from the world around us? When the church doesn't pray, what distinguishes it from the world around us? Church, when we don't pray, we functionally show each other and the world around us, we don't need God. I don't need to trust Him. He's probably not even powerful. I, you know what? He probably doesn't even care. But church, as the Bible speaks to us, as we read God's Word, that is God communicating His Word to us. And we respond to God in prayer. As the Bible breathes out towards you, you take a breath in. As we respond to God in our words, you take a breath out, or whatever the technical medical term is for that. You exhale. Without inhaling and exhaling, you will physically die. I probably don't need to tell you that. Do we consider prayer like that? Do we consider Bible intake like that? God's word shows us our need. And praying, praying is asking God, please help us. Like Eric mentioned, we have prayer on Sunday mornings. Join us. Like, I would love for all of us to join at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Because guess what? I know that each and every one of you have needs. And we would love to lift these things up to the Lord together. We ask God to help us in this time. We ask God to move in our service together as we gather. We ask God to help us in our evangelism as we go live like Christ and speak like Christ and serve like Christ as we are Christians. God, would you help us knowing suffering's gonna come? Would you join us? Suffering should drive us to prayer. We love our comfort. We look inward often. We think we're awesome, myself included at times. But when suffering came to this church, where did the church look? They looked up. They asked God for help. Maybe we should ask God for some more suffering 
so that we stop looking at ourselves and we start looking to him and asking him for help because that's what he wants. And so as we live with purpose, as we provide for one another, as we go to God in our needs through prayer, the name calling eventually turns to persecution. But we stick to our purpose. We provide for each other. We go to God in prayer and we trust in God's providence. He will deliver the church and he will punish his enemies. The church will suffer for the gospel. Look what happens when God delivers the church. Pick up in verse 6 of chapter 12. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, this is Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure of it, the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When they realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the son, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. This is John Mark, who wrote Mark's gospel, where many had gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's an angel, or it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. When he departed, he went to a, another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. You see, God, in his providential hand of kindness, delivers the church. James's death didn't hinder the church from continuing to gather. Peter's imprisonment didn't shake the church. It didn't even shake his confidence. The guy was sleeping. He was overly confident this will be fine. The purpose, provision, and prayers of the church strengthened God's people. They trusted God's hand will deliver them, maybe not in this life, but at least in the life to come from their suffering. As Peter was locked up, he was surrounded by guards. There were 16 of them that arrested him. There was sentries around him to guard him. But he was calm and assured. He was taking a nap. 
I can't sleep when I think my chickens don't have warm water when it's freezing. But Peter knew that God's hand was protecting him. And as a result of days of prayer, God breaks the bonds of the chains. God rescues him. He has him walk guard by guard out of the prison. But James, the brother of John, is still dead. God delivered Peter, but he didn't deliver James. God's providence is mysterious. It's his wise application of his sovereignty. And endurance is possible because we trust it. One pastor wrote, or the pastor who wrote the letters, or the letter to the Hebrews, he said, by faith some escaped the edge of the sword. By faith others, though, were killed by the sword. We don't know why some people have it easier than others. But some do. But the purpose, the provision, and the prayer of the church is all contingent on God's providence. And that's why we give ourselves to those things. And even when Peter is in prison, the church thought that Peter was as good as dead. They didn't believe that he was at the door. It was easier to believe that he was dead than it, God could deliver him, right? The church still had their doubts, just like you and I have our doubts. Even Herod was dumbfounded. He didn't know what was going on. And the church was wise, not posting it on social media. Like, look at this photo, who escaped from prison? Like, no, be quiet. They're balancing wisdom, but also confidence. We can be bold, church, but we do not need to be foolish. Be bold with our, or with our purpose. Provide for one another. Give ourselves in bold prayer. But we can also be patient. So long, catch me on this, so long that we don't go against what God's revealed will is. Right? We've seen that in the book of Acts. When they were told before courts to be quiet, what'd they say? We can't. It's better for us to obey God than you. And so there's this balance of boldness, but also patience. In our suffering, we stick to our purpose. We provide for one another. We go to the Lord in prayer, and we trust God's providence, either for deliverance in this life or in the life to come. I was talking to the group praying this morning and it dawned on me after I wrote the sermon that there's a reason why I think Luke wants us to remember that when persecution happened of Stephen, these other things started to transpire. Because as we look at the life of Stephen, at the end of his life, where was his eyes? His eyes were looking to heaven. He knew that he was about to die, but his eyes were fixed on the prize to come. And I think Luke wants us to remember, as a church, in the midst of our suffering, keep your eyes focused on the prize. It might be fine, but it might not be. Either way, keep our eyes focused on the life to come. 
God delivers the church. He let Peter come out of prison, but he also destroys his enemies. The church will suffer for the gospel. Look what happens to Herod. Now Herod was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having been persuaded, or having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat among the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and breathed his last. And the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Do I look surprised that Herod was angry? No. Herod, his whole family was crazy. And he took out his anger on even this group and these other two towns. Herod wanted to be worshipped. Exchange for peace and a lack of suffering for those in Tyre and Sion, Herod wanted to be glorified himself by the folks in those two towns. But God shares his glory with no one. And God ran out of patience with Herod. Idolatry deserves the wrath of God. And Herod received it. God's hand of providence will eventually deal with all our enemies. Suffering will end. And when it does, it will be as it was for this guy Herod, final and complete. As we wrap up, Acts reminds us of our purpose. We will be witnesses around the world, sharing in the sufferings of Christ and what he has done for us, the message that he has entrusted to us. Suffering will happen if we are faithful to our purpose. And we can provide for each other's needs. We can help each other out. And we can pray that God would help us. That God would give us endurance. The world doesn't like to be called sinners, does it? And when we do that, they may respond in ridicule to us. Church, can we make the term Christian stand for something? Let's look different than the world around us. God has given us his word, everything we need for life and godliness. Let's follow it. If the world wants to berate us and be derogatory to us, so what? Christian isn't a derogatory term today because I think the church struggles to live like Christians. But the last few years, Christians have been called names. And we've been more concerned about words like bigot or racist or chauvinistic or hateful. But if we live according to the purpose that God has given us, we call each other brother and sister, friend, believer. But if we don't hear the mocking around us, ask yourself the question, why? 
Church, we live according to God's purpose. Suffering may come, but let's be faithful and trust God's providence. As we see acts of God happen, or other suffering come, we can provide for one another, right? We saw Jesus' words, by the way that you love one another, they will know that you are my disciples. Famines don't last forever. Floods, the water eventually goes away. But kings also don't last forever, as we saw with Herod. But God in his word does. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. They can call us Christians. It'll be great. We can care for each other. We can love each other in this church. We can love each other outside of the church. In Acts, there's a balance between preservation but also promotion and proclamation. Maintaining our faithfulness, though, we trust God with fruitfulness. Friends, we are utterly desperate on God. And we trust him for whatever results may come. Remember your calling. Let's provide for one another, but let's also be a church that devotes itself to prayer. Friends, we should live as though we are utterly dependent on God. And we trust God that he'll help us or deliver us. He will win in the end, even if it means that we don't win in this life. Let's not forget that. God wants to hear from us. God wants to cast our cares upon him. Moving forward, we're going to see in the book of Acts more and more suffering, more and more imprisonments, more and more death to the church. And God is helping this church to prepare for what is to come, depending on him. They will continue to go to God in prayer. And like I said already, maybe we need some more suffering in the church so that we would be more dependent on him and think less of ourselves and go to him for all our needs. The simple, easy life is pretty nice, but it doesn't show much dependence upon God. So church, take a risk and trust God with whatever may come. The pastor who wrote to the Hebrews, he also said this in 1034. A bunch of Christians were in prison, and he says this, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Going to help each other in this book of Hebrews meant that those who were at the prison knew who the Christians were, but they didn't care. They knew that their brother or sister in Christ needed help and they were willing to suffer themselves by going to help each other. So church, let's live like Christians, faithful to our purpose. If suffering comes, let's provide for each other. If suffering comes, even politically, we can pray for each other. We can provide for each other. But most importantly, we trust God. We trust that he grows and he sustains his church. Consider James, right? The apostle who died by the sword. 
Jesus said that this would happen to him. If you're familiar with the Bible, you hear the story of Mark 10, where they come to Jesus, and they, tell, they ask Jesus, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can, I, can we be at your right hand? They begged for authority in the kingdom. And you remember Jesus' response, right? He says, you can't drink the cup that I'm about to drink. You can't be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with. And what was their response? Yeah, no problem. We can do that. They didn't understand what he even meant. They didn't understand that he was about to receive and drink of the cup of the wrath of God. They didn't understand that he was about to be baptized into death so that he might be raised to newness of life. Jesus told them at the end, whoever would be great will be a servant. The first will be a slave because Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the gospel. That's why we give ourselves to these things. And we are faithful to that purpose. We are faithful to be faithful to God. And we do it together. And we do it as dependent upon prayer. And we trust God's providential hand. One pastor I love, he says, that you will not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. This life is hard. James was the first apostle to die. He drank the cup and was baptized like Christ. His brother, John, who was there when he asked, he suffered the most. John was boiled alive. And he lived. And he was the last apostle to die, suffering alone. Friends, it's not about us. Do you want that for your life? Really? We, we would all say no. But let's ask God to change that in us. That we would be so bold to live like Christians that whatever suffering may come, it's worth it. Corey Tim Boom, she's a, a woman who hid some Jewish folks during World War II. She's from the Netherlands. Her biography is awesome. You should read it. She suffered much. And she survived the Holocaust. She said, the wonderful thing about prayer is that you leave a world of not being able to do something and enter God's realm where everything is possible. He specializes in the impossible. Nothing is too great for his almighty power. Nothing is too small for his love. Derogatory names, acts of God, political persecution, they're all gracious ways for God to remind us we depend on him. We need his help. We don't need to seek imprisonment. But as we're bold, names will come. Imprisonment may follow. Suffering is normal for Christians. And sometimes suffering is self-induced. But it's worth it when it comes in response to our purpose with name-calling. Sometimes our suffering is out of our hands with natural disasters. But our response is to provide for each other. Sometimes it's a mixture of both. Persecution and prayer is what drives us to depend on God's good providence to get us through it. God has given us the tools we need, a purpose, provision, and prayer together. Tomorrow we get to be faithful to the call and trust Him in the process. Even this afternoon you can give it a shot. You'll never lose these tools. 
You'll never misplace them. They are always right here. And when you forget them, we as a church get to say, ha, you have that tool. You can use it. Even if we disregard them. Our suffering isn't random or without purpose, but God gives us the tools to endure suffering. In a couple of weeks, Acts 14, 22 will remind us saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The church will suffer for the gospel. And friends, trust me, it's worth it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. And as we look at these things before us, I think our natural reaction would be like, nope, I don't want to do it. I like comfort. I like ease. But God, you call us to be like your son who left his throne in heaven, who left his perfect relationship with you, who left immortality and put on mortal flesh so that he might die on the cross for our sins, that he would be humiliated, that he would be put in a tomb so that he might rise from the dead to give us everlasting life. So God, we thank you and we praise you. Would you help us to lift up our voice to remember your son's body given, his blood shed on the cross for our sins, that you would receive the worship that you are due, that we wouldn't be like Herod, but we would fall on our face in humble, repentant worship, giving you the glory that only you deserve. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.